The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran From Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plaincrazydownunder.com. For great coverage of the Kiwi warbird, restoration and aviation scene, we like to listen to Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Normally I just start by asking your full name, rank and service number. Yep. Um, 5794118 Corporal Hubbard. RAF or 79257 uh, squad leader Derek Elden Hubbard. Right. And your date of birth and place of birth? Uh, my place of birth was Hartford. My date was 2528 1926. Okay. And what was your background? Where did you go to school? And... Okay, I was born in Hartford. I went to the normal infant school and the intermediate school. Uh, then I passed the 11 plus exam in 1937. Yeah. And uh, I also sat and passed an examination called a Costica examination, which not only gave me the education, I thought he got that with the 11 plus but it supplied my parents with all the costs of uniform, books and all the rest of it. So I got a double whammy. And uh, and that was to the age of 16. From then on it was over to me, right. all my parents. Uh, but I'd always wanted to be in the Air Force. And during the interview uh, with our headmaster, uh, Mr. Bunt, uh, a real English gentleman, um, he said, and what do you want to do when you leave school? Right? And I said, I want to join the Air Force, sir. And he says, we'll get rid of that silly idea. Every boy leaving this school wants to go in the military, joins the Indian Army. <laughs> <laughs> that was those days yeah. at that time. Yeah. Wow. Right. 
Um, so what was your original inspiration to join the Air Force? Yeah, 1930, 31, I spent Christmas with my parents, with my grandparents in London at Leighton. And at the same time, my uncle, and bear in mind I was, what, five years old, and uh, my uncle was home on leave from Horton. He was an aircraft apprentice. Right. He joined a couple of months earlier. And he was resplendent in his uniform, with his dog collar, his breeches, his putties, shiny boots, and swagger cane, and flat hat. And that was for me. And I knew then that, and I've never varied, I've always wanted to be in the RAF. Um, things changed later on, round about the 1950s, to the point where I was disappointed in myself and a little bit in the RAF because I didn't want to stay in the Air Force any longer. Right. But there was a reason for that. Sometime I'll tell you, unless you want to know now. Up to you. Anytime. <laughs> um, I'd enjoyed myself. I finished my training, uh, met great people, um, and I did pilot training, didn't complete it. Uh, then I joined 72 Squad in 1950, and things started to go wrong then. The Cold War was really hitting home. We had conscription. We were having to, they were having to do the job that had six weeks training on aircraft as, say, an airframe tradesman. They had to do the work and we had to sign for it. Right. And we were getting a lot of silly accidents. And on 72 Squadron for the, from March 1950, through to uh, November 1952, the three year period, we had 22 aircraft and we replaced every one of them. Wow. Yeah. 1952, we started getting fatal accidents and we had a lot. To the point in 1952, the RAF lost 505 aircraft wow. in that one year. Amazing, isn't it? It is. Uh, but true, um, there was 80 vampires, 150 meteors, and a range of other aircraft. Yeah. And it was all accidents. The Berlin airlift had finished, the end of 1952, the Korean War was finished, the Vietnam War had, we weren't involved in. Yeah. So, pure accidents. Wow. That's incredible for peacetime, isn't it, really? Well, Okay, even more time. Uh, just before we left Horton, we had a, um, uh, a safety um, lecture by a chappie from Air Department in London. And he came up to Horton and gave us a talk, and he was saying that from 1945 through to, uh, from 1939 to 1945, the number of people killed in accidents, not enemy action, yeah. accidents, was greater than the strength of the Air Force in 1938. 
That's incredible. Give you another example of. I was on 46 entry at Halton. We had a chappie by the name of uh, Jack Gray, and he had he was one of five brothers. Yeah. Uh, two of them were ex-Halton apprentices. One was a direct entry. The direct entry uh, became a pilot, flight lieutenant, and he was killed in the Far East during the war. Uh, Tommy Gray, uh, Houghton apprentice, he was killed the bombing of the Maastricht Bridge, Battle of France, yeah. and got the VC with his pilot. They were the first two VCs of the war. Right. Okay. And then Jack Gray, we passed out 25th of July 1945. I went to Boscombe Down. Jack and Blondie Meadows, who was the senior sergeant and took the parade, our passing out parade, um, they uh, went to Hull Abingdon and they worked on Lancasters. And they were there a fortnight and they'd finished the servicing on this Lancaster and they volunteered, as air crew do, a ground crew do, to uh, go on the air test. and. Uh, the uh, aircraft took off, the pilot called for undercarriage up and the flight engineer pushed the lever and retracted the flaps, not the undercarriage, so he just went. He got maximum drag from the undercarriage, lost the lift from the flaps and all, all of them were killed. So that's uh, the one other brother who was at Halton. He trained also as a pilot and did a beat up at uh, Morecambe Bay yeah. in England and hit the mast of a yacht and was killed. So all four brothers were killed. Wow. Two in accidents, two by war, which shows that comparison where you get so many accidents. Yeah. The other brother, by the way, became a policeman. <laughs> he wasn't going to try the airplanes. <laughs> but carrying on to this design thing, uh, when we had the vampires at Northworld, one of them had a problem with the pedostatic, so we had to take the inboard tank out on the port side to get to the pipelines. The instrument Chappie disconnected the pipelines, blew air through to clear the line, connected it all up, pressurised the system to make sure it was okay, yeah. sent the aircraft off and the pilot didn't check his airspeed until he was rotating, at which point it was too late, he had to carry on, but he had no airspeed. Right? So we had to hurriedly service another aircraft, get it airborne to go beside him and give him airspeed to be able to land. Right, right. And of course what had happened, the two pipelines, the two unions, the two pipelines, one above the other, identical, they were crossed. Uh, right. right. Now, uh, when we changed over, due to the crashes of the aircraft, we changed on 72 Squadron from vampires to meteors. Yeah. And 
the first meeting we got, we laid bets as to how quickly we'd prank one. And it was eight days. And it was the, uh, the, um, the CO, who was an American on exchange, Captain Breeze. Okay. And he came into land, perfect landing, no problem at all. And then the undercarriage just folded up and slid along on wow. his belly. The two levers, again, identical. Yeah. Both round knobs and he selected undercarriage up instead of flaps. Right, right. Right. Now carrying on just one more time. The prototype Tudor uh, was in the hangar, it had got a problem and the with the ailerons. So they disconnected the cables, reconnected the cables, did the check, right? But slightly lack of communication. He didn't ask which way the control column was going, but he saw the ailerons doing that. Yeah. Roy Chadwick, the designer of the Lancaster with the two knobs, and again the controls, one above the other. Roy Chadwick went up on the flight, and um, the aircraft started to drop a wing on takeoff and the more the pilot tried to pick it up the more it went in. Right, right. The aircraft crashed and Roy Chadwick was killed. So there we are. That gives you some idea of my feeling as to why I wanted to get out of the Air Force. Yeah. All those little basic mistakes add up to a lot. A lot, yes. Yeah. Um, from there I went to de Havilland's. Oh before that I went to Boscombe Down. It was an interesting one. Oh right. Uh, because double A double E, Air and Armament Experimental Establishment, and of course they had the test pilot school there. And one particular chap, he was squadron leader Jean Zerikowski. You've heard of him? I have vaguely heard the name, I'm not too sure of him. Okay. Um, his party piece was the Hornet, right. right, which is a small mosquito. Yeah. And he used to come across the airfield when he's finished stream across the rate of knots, turn and feather one engine. Right? Come across, turn and feather the second engine. Wow. Go across the airfield, turn and then come back and then turn, feather one engine and then did it all. Fantastic bloke. Wow. We then went to Farnborough, 1949 I think it was, and uh, he was by then test deputy test pilot, chief test pilot at um, Gloucester's. Right. And he had a meteor with a ventral tank and rockets fully loaded. Right. Screaming across the airfield, vertical, closed both motors. As he started to tailstorm, he opened one motor and did the fin sling. Cartwheeled, yeah. came out of it into a spin and then pulled away. Wow! But he tried it three times. The first twice he was into cloud so he just spun out of it. But he had to spin because the meteor was prone to doing an inverted spin. 
and you didn't recover from that. Right, right. So, anyway, that's the RAF side. Then I went to De Havilland's. Yes. Uh, and you know what happened at De Havilland's. I was there in 52. Um, from 1949 to 1956. Well, I was there from 52 to 56. In that time, they'd built 23 comets. Okay. Yep. Right. Not like these days. They buy ten. They build ten a month. You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> seven, eight, seven. It's no problem. Or even twelve. Um, so twenty-three. But zero one and zero two were prototype. Yep. They had the very large wheels. Uh, zero six was again a prototype. Or Mark One. Yep. Oh, it was just a straight Mark One. But it was fitted with the Avon engines. To te as a test bed for the Mark II. Okay. And then number 23 was a straight Mark II with Avon engines, slightly bigger thick up. Yeah. And, but after remainder, as we know, six crashed. Yeah. Uh, one other, the um, relief valve on pressure refueling failed uh, in the Middle East. And uh, pressure of the refueling blew the skin off the ribs wow. one wing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the other one, and second one that had an accident at Dum Dum Airport, taxiing, it ran off the taxiway, got bogged down, the pilot wanted to get it out, full power until the undercarriage out. It was repaired, sent back to England and didn't fly again. Okay. So there weren't many left because one in 1953-54 they were grounded anyway and uh, the whole lot. One was used in the test tank, the water tank, yeah. and the other was used for engine runs. They did permanent constant engine runs to see what would happen because they were getting problems. You probably know that 80% uh, of the comet was redux join, not riveted. Oh, right. All right, okay. Redux is metal to metal yeah. with, uh, or cups. Can't remember the names of the materials now. I've got it in the book there. Um, yeah, it uh, parted company due to the flexing of the tail right. and also due to the hydraulic oil getting in overspill and things like that. Um, by the way, water tank test, uh, a lot of people think that they put air in the fuselage. No, they filled the tank with water but they also filled the fuselage with water okay. and pressurised the water. The reason they do that is that if you put air in there and the fuselage would explode, it would go off like a 500 pound bomb. Right, right. But you can't compress a liquid, not, you can at 30,000 pounds per square inch, but yeah. <laughs> okay, that pressure you can't really, so you're not building up a great pressure of water and when you, as it happened, all the windows burst open. It, the water just released itself into the tank. Okay. Okay. 
um, what else can I tell you? Yes, the modification due to the flexing of the tail was to put 5,000 rivets through all the stringers from behind the wing up to the tail because okay. that flexing had caused a problem. Right. Um, they also canted the four engines outboard instead of being straight, they canted the tail uh, exhaust out oh, right. to avoid the flexing. Uh, you note that one of them stalled on takeoff, one of the crashes. Oh, right. and killed everyone oh, okay. on board, the Canadian Pacific one. The shape of the intake, when it's like that and you rotate beyond 15 degrees, which the pilot did, right, you've reduced your air intake and you're getting turbulence in that part of the intake. Right. So they cut that back, extended that and put an overfall section in the lower side of the intake. Right, that was another one. The other one is, it was only carrying 36 passengers anyway, because the engines were not like today. No. They were quite uh, lightweight in thrust. And uh, so um, they, uh, they couldn't put slats on, which would have added to the weight. But they needed to do something with the main, change the profile of the main plane. So they took the existing leading edges off and made a drooped one so that the aircraft could rotate up to 15 degrees or probably just a bit more without stalling. They increased the thickness of the material on the windows. They um, change the shape of the windows. Yeah, that one. Right. Yeah. But the original one that exploded was the top ADF window, the opening there for that plastic window type thing. They hadn't allowed for pressurization because there was a crack there which had been repaired. Right. Standard procedure. Yeah. But not for a pressurized aircraft that was going up almost to forty thousand feet. And this was one of the problems, which didn't come out in the report. I've seen a chappy there, and it really worried me, the escape hatch over the wing, right? Beating hell out of the fuselage, right? Yeah. To get the window or the escape door to fit. Right. I have drawn 11 um, doors, access doors under the uh, leading edge of the engine to get one to fit. It was a hand-built aeroplane, unlike today. Right. So that's the Havilands. Uh, from there I went to Fleetlands. Uh, that was the most wonderful. It was, uh, all tradesmen were ex-servicemen. It was the same as Safe Air, working for the Air Force. Okay. Right. Well, I should just to take you back with, with the Havilands. Yes. Um, were you on the design side, the maintenance no, side? I, the no, side? I was on the construction side construction, right. for two years, right? And then I went on to production research. And for that, out of the problems that came about, one was where you've got the stringers, right? 
the edges of the stringers, when they're formed, it's still rough, yeah. incipient cracks, right? So we had to produce a machine to polish it, right? Yeah. But if you've got a stringer shaped like that and like that, with two flat edges, put one curled up, how, how are you going to polish that? But what better way than how is the stringer made? Well, it's made from a roll of flat metal yep. and goes through a series of dies, yeah. right? Well, before you put it through the series of dies, why not put it through a emery wheel, right? Yeah. And just polish out all the rough edges. Right? Uh, a drill, all holes when you drill, and there weren't many of them, but there were some in awkward places. Um, the drill leaves a rough edge. So what you wanted was a drill and then a reamer to ream it out properly. Yep. So they made nice little drills. The drill itself being... Oh, I'll show you later. Um, about the first half inch is the drill. Yeah. And then it's wasted slightly and just that fraction bigger than the drill was the reamer. Okay. The actual eighth of an inch, we'll yeah. say. Yeah. And that polished it. Um, and things like that. There are others where you couldn't do that, get to the back and some of the awkward places. So we made a gun with a rotating drill piece which operated with a spring and a, a cable so that it twisted round like that backwards and forwards and polished the edge of obscure holes. Right. Right. So all those sorts of things. Yeah. That was my job, working with the scientists and the rest of it. Another one, uh, changing from the comic, because uh, a lot of things were going on, but we had problems with the vampire right. and the vampire fuel tank. Um, they were wondering why you were getting ozone deterioration in the tank, and the tank was failing. Of course, it's a self-sealing tank, yeah. and it wasn't being penetrated from outside, it was being penetrated from inside. Oh, the inside was deteriorating. What it was, the tanks, during servicing, are being left on the bench in the sunlight yep. with the tank cap off and you're getting ozone deterioration, just like a bicycle tyre, yep. the crazy. Yep. And they found that it was due to the plasticizer being used in the rubber for moulding. So things like that. Right, okay. Okay. So that was an era when particularly with the Comets, it was new to have jet airliners. Uh, you were, was, they were still building the aircraft under the principles of a non-pressurised aircraft. Right. Standard right. procedure. If you had a crack, it was quite safe to drop, use Mark 1 eyeball to drill a hole. But not so with the Comet, as they learned yeah. with that ADF window. You must use black light 
or some similar thing, non-destructive testing, to determine just how far that crack is going. Right, right. right. So they, they did. So there was so much uh, trial and error and work out, work out why it failed rather than can this fail doing it this way. So That's right, yeah, yes. Yeah. No, it, it was an interesting experience. Uh, the only thing is the hours we had to work, and that was a killer. Um, we used to a normal 45-hour week, but we had to work overtime. If you want, it was working on the aircraft. It was uh, a bonus system. Yeah, right. You probably know what a bonus system is. The faster you work, the more money you're going to get. Yeah. And nobody's got the time to talk to you. So you didn't have great conversations, unlike in the Air Force, where you can discuss things. You can say, hey, Pete, give us a hand with this, and he'll drop his job. Yeah. But you can't do that, because he would lose money. So right. that, that was a problem. Yeah. So 45-hour week, two hours Tuesday and Thursday evening, uh, Saturday morning from 9 till 1 and on Sunday um, overtime was from 9 till 4. So that was our working week. Yeah, wow. And then occasionally before we had the accidents if the aircraft was slipping behind they knew they would be on a financial penalty yeah. they would then take they would say, come do a ghoster. They would approach you about four o'clock in the afternoon. You finish at six. Um, they say, do a ghoster. Well, they gave you an hour for a meal. You start work again at seven. Work all the way through the night till the next morning. You had a break in the middle of the night and then you had break for breakfast and then you start your normal day again. Oh, that's crazy. Was, because they were, they were on a winner, weren't they? Because you could, in that time, you slowed down certainly, yeah. but you progressed the aircraft yeah. that little bit further. And they know you cannot beat the system and work faster, so you lose your bonus. On the win, right, right. Right. So where they're paying you overtime, they're gaining by not paying you the bonus. Good system. So so surely, surely that must have had a long-term effect on the. Oh yes. The <laughs> I mean, They've changed now. Yeah, of course. But I mean, th thinking about it, they were having the problems with fatigue on the aircraft, but fatigue on the people as well. That's right. Which which would lead to worse things happening with the aircraft, surely. Yeah. Yep, yeah, mistakes were made. The chap who, the first time they took the leading edge off and put a drooped leading edge on, had a brilliant idea, he was on the night shift by the way, yeah. <laughs> had a brilliant idea, instead of when you get a hole, you draw a line across, draw a line across, right, extend it out, and then when you got your new one back, you draw your line, you can drill there. He had a new system. Drilled all the way through. Everyone missed oh. the original hole. Because the anchor nuts were already in the lead on the um, the front spar. Yeah. <laughs> and he missed everyone. Oh no. 
A lot of mistakes were made, yes. Oh, and they do happen. But, anyway, coming back to Fleetlands, that was lovely conditions. The, the hangars were beautiful. They were lined, air conditioning units all the way down the side. This is Royal Navy, right. or Fleet Air Arm, yeah. at uh, Gosport. Um, but, uh, and four Seahawks down each side, and two bods employed to sweep the hangar floor yeah. all the time. Wow. If any hydraulic oil spilled, they were there with the sawdust and swept it up. Great. But there's always a fly in the ointment, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, working for the Navy, you're a civil servant. But you can't be a civil servant until you've been working for them for five years. Okay. Right? Now, I went from the Avalons to Fleetlands, and um, fine, I got to wait five years. Lossy Mouth closed, right? The same system up there. Yeah. Now, the chappies who are made redundant, the civil servants, had the choice of any place throughout the UK. Yeah. They could nominate and say, I want that job. And if there was somebody there who was not a civil servant, you're out. Uh, so that was a possibility. But it may never, may never have eventuated, but I thought, okay, let's... Uh, when the opportunity came to join this Air Force, yeah, that's what I'd, I'd wanted to do anyway. Yeah. Um, now, the other fly in the ointment was the aircraft itself. <laughs> Good aircraft, but um, the hydraulic system, uh, the emergency system was air. And uh, so if you, and on the servicing, you, after you've done your servicing, you had to operate all emergency systems, blow your flaps down, blow your undercarriage down, blow the hook down, right? And then you got to bleed the system. All 102 bleed points. <laughs> and that takes gallons of hydraulic oil. Um, but anyway, that only left part of the job anyway. But. What, what was the aircraft? What was the Seahawk. Oh, Hawker Seahawk. Yep. Nice little aircraft. Um, then we had uh, the hydraulic components were all in the port under carriage well. Yeah. Right, all your little boxes. All with these hundreds of pipelines and unions and because being the British lock wire. And the item you wanted was and you came out dripping with blood. I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where the um, tech chap doing the tech drawing of the Vol 1, right, drew the schematic with all these units and the pipelines and put two little gremlins laughing their heads off, sitting on the pipelines. <laughs> Subsequent version <laughs> didn't have it. <laughs> so that was Fleetlands. It, it was good. It was a lovely place to work. Right. But I could see the possibility. Anyway, in the Daily Mirror, the advert for the New Zealand Air Force came up. I applied yeah. at the behest of my 
dear wife, because she knew I've always been interested in New Zealand. One reason was that my father came here, he was in the merchant service and then the navy, but he came here in 1918 on the Remuera, um, which was a troop ship carrying casualties out. And he always raved about, and he came out another time, and he always talked about New Zealand. Bear in mind, population then was a million. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a great country. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the intermediate school, our geography teacher, his pet subject was New Zealand. Okay. Uh, specifically, uh, Marlborough and Canterbury. So I'd always had that interest. Oh. And um, I met one or two New Zealanders. I met one at uh, a rehabilitation centre, Leighton, Lord and Lady Kenyon Slaney's uh, house. Uh, I'd had appendicitis. And in those days, appendicitis was a serious yeah. operation. Yeah. So I had a couple of weeks at this place and I met a New Zealander there who had half his face blown away. Wartime. And uh, I did meet one other um, New Zealander uh, on 24 Squadron, on the Berlin Airlift at Battingbourne. And two Dakotas were coming into land and one cut in on the other. And he was at about that angle as he came past the hangar. And my friend and I were walking to the mess and uh, we thought, He's in, <laughs> but no, there he was, running, all four, all, all wheels, yeah. except the last six feet of the wing was up at 45 degrees. Oh. <laughs> it was a New Zealand sergeant pilot. Okay. Right, when he'd hit the wing, it was obvious he was going to do it. Not only did the wingtip go up, but the ailer. So he had no aileron. Right. That was jammed. So he slapped his rudder over to skid it up, which was very successful, but he was a very powerful bloke. I don't know if you know the, the Dakota. Yeah, yeah. Right? Down the tail. Not only have you got your 3,500 weight cables to the rudder, yeah. but as a protection, you have a rudder check cable, the 500 weight cable. Okay. to stop you overstressing or the wind and he slapped it over so hard he broke the 500 weight rudder check cable wow. as well. Anyway, we had to do the repairs but unlike the comet, <laughs> you just drew another wingtip because it had extra sized holes and a penny washer. Easy. <laughs> anyway, coming back to joining the New Zealand Air Force. Uh, we were invited up to London, my wife and I, to be interviewed by Bull Duncan. Do you know Bull Duncan? I've heard of him. Uh, yes, yeah. he was a good warrant officer in the islands yeah. and up at Singapore and that. Great character. Uh, he was a squadron leader by now. Right. And, uh, and he says, right lad, you want to join the New Zealand Air Force? I, I was 31 at the time. Uh, I'd been through Houghton, I'd done pilot training, 
I was a 15th year fitter. He says, right, okay, and I was a corporal. And he says, right lad, you won't be a corporal, you'll be uh, an LAC. You'll do a recruit course all over again, down at Tyree. Yes. And uh, after nine months you will send all your trade tests, all over again, written, oral and practical. And there's no housing, your wife and two children will follow anything up to a year after you've left. And we didn't even think twice, we said, all right. Okay. <laughs> Once we'd said it and accepted it, no problem. We did the recruit course, uh, which was very interesting. <laughs> and I've never ever regretted it. It's been an absolute joy to be out here. But if you like, I'll tell you just a little bit about the recruit course. There was one young corporal there, 18 year old boy Brown, our Dennis Brown. He was great. And on the course, we had one young. 18 year old boy and smart as anything and he did everything polished the soles of his boots and all the rest of it but he could not please Dennis and in the end we all passed out and the, this little fella by the name of John Clements uh, was given an assessment tried but in vain well John was a ground radar mechanic UT, but he didn't want to stay there, so he volunteered for air crew, became a pilot, went through flying Sunderlands and all the rest of it, yeah. and eventually became a squadron leader. And for his sins, they made him CO of the officer training school here. And who should turn up on the doorstep to be commissioned <laughs> but Boy Brown? Enough <laughs> said. <laughs> anyway, my assessment was that this airman needs to be watched. At my dining out 25, 24 years later, Boy Brown attended <laughs> as a squadron leader and he corrected it. He says, no, no. No, it wasn't the, that this airman needs to be watched. It was this airman need to be washed because he came out deck cargo on the Captain Cook. So there we are. <laughs> um, yes, people, great people. John Bates with his playing the bagpipes at uh, 56,000 feet to beat 55 Squadron, which had played a mouse organ at 55,000 feet and wanting to get into the Guinness Book of Records, he conned the one that had crashed at Ahakia to take him to 56,000 feet and play the bagpipes, which he did, but unfortunately he didn't get in the Guinness Book of Records because Neil Armstrong had played a mouse organ on the moon. <laughs> what else? Johnny Me. Flight Sergeant Me, wonderful character. He had the Air Force interests at heart, but the men more. We could never get enough trestles or anything like that to service the aircraft in the 1950s and 60s. 
and uh, Johnny had been over on the course on the um, Bristol freighters, and he couldn't get any stands for the Bristol freighter, except one. So come AOC's inspection, Johnny says, right lads, that stand, next hangar, put it by an aircraft. Now find all the packing cases you can, put them underneath the engines, and now start working on them. <laughs> on the engine. <laughs> he got his stands. <laughs> He joined in 1938, actually, and I learned this from, we spent a couple of nights at a motel down at um, Wanaka, uh, not Wanaka, what's the other one, Tekapo. Oh, yeah. um, we spent a, night, a, a couple of nights at this motel, and the boss man there was an ex-Air Force chap, and we got talking, and... He joined in 1938, the same as Johnny Me. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned Johnny Me, he says, don't mention that bloke to me. Because this chap, he was a cook, and he was on the mess committee. And Johnny Me was on the mess committee. <laughs> and he always asked the most awkward questions and all the rest of it. But he says, I'll. I'll tell you a story about him. He said um, they used to do the water drain checks and dump checks on the sun on the Catalinas, and uh, the fuel couldn't be used in the aircraft again. It had to be used for washing bits and pieces of the engine or whatever. But uh, John had a bright idea. Filled half a bucket with petrol, got a mop, and walked from the apron at Hobsonville, up to headquarters where the car park was, and uh, mop bucket <laughs> up to his car, which he had modified to be able to refill from inside the back seat, yeah. not from outside. <laughs> and on the way, coming towards him, was an officer. So he put the bucket down, got the mop, pretended it was a Rifle, did a proper slope arms, smart salute, and the officer <laughs> carry on me very good. <laughs> they were the sort of people I've met in this Air Force. I think it could be summed up as being the difference between the two Air Forces class distinction. That's why I'm bored on the top, tugging me full locks <laughs> of the officers in the RAF. Yeah. Here, they were great. Yeah. It's a wonderful country. I signed on for four years, um, and then I was going back. I had to keep faith with the family, so my wife and two children did the journey back and back out again. And I signed on for the bundle, oh, for the full 24. And now, happily, I'm a guide here with my wife at the museum. Right. Now, is, is that what you wanted to know? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, wh which squadrons did you end up on in New Zealand? In New Zealand, five squadron. Yep. Then I went to the depot, into the tank bay as a sergeant. And uh, then Nev McDonald, 
that's another one. <laughs> um, said, uh, I want you as my edge. Uh, I want you commissioned. Uh, prior to that, in 1964, I was offered a commission. Uh, I showed a lack of interest when I went for the final interview because I knew I was only going to be offered a short service commission, four years, which is not what I wanted. I'd already signed on for 24. I wanted a career. So I turned it down. I was offered a commission again in 68 and I still turned it down. Come 1970, Nev MacDonald said, I want you to be commissioned, be my edge. I said, okay. He says, you'll get on and finish your full time, which I did. And uh, fine. Coming back to Nev MacDonald, um, he was in England on the uh, Hastings aircraft. And um, the last day they were there, they'd had problems with uh, Hastings and the originals, and the exhaust stubs were unmodified, they kept cracking. Right? And uh, anyway, they accepted them. But the night before they were due to leave, John Nev got all the bolts back to work overtime because the RAF's Hastings were in the same hangar and he quietly switched <laughs> Oh brilliant! He took off the next morning <laughs> Oh that's fantastic yeah. So they are the things, they are the people <laughs> God bless a lot of them well, I hope that's That's fantastic, thank you very much Derek That's alright can I tell um, you one more story? Sure. Okay. Palestine. That's where I was posted from Boscombe Down. Yep. And, uh, which was interesting, uh, going out by boat, the Strathnaver, a troop ship, um, rather crowded on our deck, Air Force people, even more crowded down below where the 14th Army regulars were. Yep. But the rest of the ship was fairly empty, officers and their wives and all the rest of it. So the 14th Army, when we got into the Med, decided they wanted to sleep on deck. But the tank manager had other ideas and uh, turfed them off. And there was a lot of mumbling. And so the tank major said, what's the problem? And one bloke just opened his mouth and he says, fall in two men, put that man in the guard room. That was the sort of action you got in those days. Wow. Right. So, they rioted. They said, one in, all in. We're all going inside. <laughs> the colonel came up and pacified everyone, said the bloke will be treated leniently, exactly. But he couldn't go against the tank major. Right. So, we have a riot. When we got to the Middle East, to um, Suez, uh, we found the Air Force was on strike. Demob, demob numbers. The Air Force, when their demob number was due, yeah. were being held back to fly people from the Far East 
casualties and all the rest of it back home. They didn't like it, so they went on strike. Now, from there, I was posted to Mercer Matrua and then on detachment to a place called Akia. Now, Akia is identical to this base. And instead of uh, Westmoreland over there, yeah. it was a little village called Rehoveth. And it was a bit closer, it was on Wigwa, as close as Wigwam Road, right on the edge of the airfield. Yeah. Come normal working day, barbed wire all on the domestic side. In the evening, all the aircraft, the lengths and the Warwicks were brought on board and parked on the tarmac behind the barbed wire. And the gate closed to stop the Hagan or the Stern Gang doing any damage. This particular day, uh, the siren went three minutes to twelve. We thought, phew, blokes early, lunch. We all packed up and uh, we found out that a lorry had come from Mahomes, dressed up as an Air Force lorry with blokes in ovals <laughs> who could speak English, or one of them could, yeah. and a little uh, airman on the gate didn't think twice and let it in. And it drove straight up to the armory, tied the flight sergeant up, loaded all the arms and ammunition on the lorry and took off. Out through the gate. Wow. No problem. It was the, the classic raid. That's the stone game in the Haganah. Anyway, they were good at that. Uh, but they weren't good at tying knots. The fly sergeant got undone very quickly and sounded the alarm. Right. That was the alarm. All right. right? So, the, you got your runway, same as you have here, and the peritrack went out to the end. But Rehoboth was straight across. It was winter time. It had been raining. They panicked when they heard the uh, siren and decided to do a shortcut straight through to Rovers. Didn't work. They got bogged down. So they had to take to their little scrapers and run to Rehovers. We gained a lorry, a pick and a shovel, and got all our arms and ammunition back. <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah. Right. Now, go forward 50 years. Okay. Coming in to the present day. My young grandson, who's an Australian, because my daughter, in her infinite wisdom, went over to UK for the big OE, met an Australian, married him, lived in Australia, and had a son, and he decided to get married. Yeah. And a lovely lady, a very nice young lady, actually. Um, I think she's about 20 years old. Anyway, we went over, and uh, I got talking to her. And I said, you're not Australian, are you? She says, no, no, I'm Dutch. I said, oh, where, where do you come from? She says, oh, I come from Delft. Oh, yeah, I said, I know that. That's a nice little city. They make nice pieces of pottery and stuff, plates. Uh, oh, she says, but I spent a lot of my time with my parents in Israel. I said, oh, here's pick up. Yeah. Um, where did you live in Israel? Oh, she said, it's a little village you wouldn't know. Go on, I said, try me. And she says, we're hovers. 
Well, I've often thought, I wonder if her grandfather was the driver of the lorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's Jewish. Right. <laughs> so I can't be all that mad at Jews, can I? <laughs> Mind you, the marriage didn't last, so right. that's all right. But she's still a great friend. Right. Yeah. No. Um, at that time, in those days, I was very sympathetic to the Jews and their plight. I took my wife back when I left this Air Force to all the places I'd ever been posted to throughout the world on a world tour and we went to Israel. Anyway, there we are. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Derek. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs> <laughs>